Ari Rosenbaum here with another fun-filled episode of that 4K podcast. This, are, this week we're going to talk about 4K plant sponsors and what they really should be focused on, uh, focusing on what the government is kind of focusing on, kind of a really a description of some of the uh, issues that, uh, since the government's talking about it, that, you know, obviously maybe plant sponsors should obviously be concerned with. And, of course, first things first, um, as always, talking about the live events. We will we will be in Phoenix on Tuesday, May the 10th, uh, Chase Field, Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, we're going to go with uh, uh, 2001 uh, World Series champion Reggie Sanders as our guest. Uh, and we will have uh, a number of tickets for that game night, which I believe is against the Miami Marlins. Um so please uh, sign up. Go to that 4 ksitecom for further information. As far as the Miami Marlins, that will also we will also see them in action on June 24th, as we will be at Lone Depot Park in Miami, Florida. Uh, you know, get your tickets. That 4 ksitecom uh, for further information. Uh, finalizing the guests for that one uh, should be a lot of fun. And then, uh, you know, obviously since a, a lot of the restrictions have. Uh, uh, taken back, uh, we will certainly book an event for September. October, we have Charlotte, North Carolina, and uh, we'll see what's going on with November. Uh, you know, the plan was to do New Orleans. We'll see if there is interest uh, in, in going to the Big Easy. And um, uh, obviously, go to that 4ksite.com for further information uh, on what we're doing with that 4K conference. Um, one of my favorite movies of all time is Casino. Uh, I think when it first came out, and I want to say it was '95, could be I could be wrong and say '96. There was a lot of criticism that merely it was a Goodfellas remake or just a just another Goodfellas movie, and that's because of De Niro and Pesci being in it. But it obviously was different, uh, based on uh, the true story of uh, Lefty Rosenthal who was the basis for Sam Ace Rothstein. So there was a book um, that came out by Nicholas Pileggi around the same time as the screenplay for Casino, uh, which was done by Scorsese and Pileggi. Uh, Pileggi obviously based on the true story of uh, Tony the uh, Tony the Ant, was it the Ant, I think, Spilatro, and Lefty Rosenthal, which was the basis for uh, the De Niro and Pesci characters. And obviously cha- name, names were changed and whatnot, but... Uh, if you're ever interested and can find a copy of the Pelagi Casino book, it tells you the actual true story, uh, which was fictionalized for the movie. And, uh, you know, one great scene um, in the movie, Sam Ace Rothstein uh, had gone for his casino license, which was uh, knocked down by the Nevada State Gaming Commission. I think Harry Reid was actually on the commission at the time. And Sam wanted to fight them. Uh, you know, he was doing TV shows, which was, in the book you'll see that that is what Frank uh, Lefty Rosenthal did. And um, Alan King played Andy Stone in the movie, which was a teamster controlled by the mafia who, you know, obviously um, gave money for the building of the Tanger Casino in the movie. And when he, you know, was talking to Sam, he was saying that... Uh, you know, when 
he was talking about basically what the mafia chieftains in Kansas City and all the surrounding areas were concerned with Sam taking on the Nevada Gaming Board, especially because they were people that they, they knew and, and represented, and it, it, it brought a lot of attention to Sam and would bring attention to the fact that the mafia was behind the, the Tangerous Casino. And so he says, you know, the old man said, maybe your friend should give in. And when the old man says maybe, that's like a papal bull. Not only should you quit, you should run. And, you know, it reminds me, it also reminds me of the old E.F. Hutton commercials. You know, when uh, E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. Um, you know, with, with the brokerage industry, which was uh, the old days when it was all done by phone and there weren't really that many RIAs and whatnot. It was kind of funny. So the basis of this are, you know, basis of this podcast really is to talk about, you know, when the IRS and the Department of Labor are talking about things, um, you know, uh, I think it's wise for plan sponsors to just listen and, and see what's going on and, and be concerned with what the DOL and the IRS is going to be concerned with. Because quite honestly, you get caught in an audit. Some of the issues that they're bringing up now, these are issues that, you know, are going to be brought up in an audit. First, obviously, you know, July 31st is, is coming down the pike. We got a cycle three restatement. IRS requires your plan to get a new plan document through a restatement process every six years. Um, the time is up. I remember the last time um, uh, we had one. Uh, that was the, uh, I want to say it was the PPA restatement. Um, what was interesting about that restatement... I remember it being the PPA restatement because at the time I was uh, I took a week off to go to Las Vegas, you know, working on my house, uh, which I, I corresponded with the time that it was the uh, April break. It was Passover time, and I was also speaking at NIPA, and uh, I think I did get a call like two days before the deadline about somebody needing you know a, a lot of restatements. Uh, and I reached out to the advisor, never heard anything back or whatnot. But, uh, yeah, we have cycle three restatements. July 31st is the deadline. And, uh, obviously the, uh, issue is that all plans have to be amended and restated. Um, I used to always, uh, like, uh, when I used to work for a TPA and we had like 700 clients, Anytime we had to do a, uh, you know, an amendment, uh, ancillary amendment, or a plan restatement, a plan amendment restatement, you'd send out letters. And I want to say that thanks to uh, Manny, the guy in charge, who was totally clueless, for some reason or another, we did not have a master client list. So there was no list where I can, you know, get a, a list of all our clients with the information and whatnot, I actually had to go eat to each individual plan administrator. Now, the problem was, uh, as the ERISA attorney for um, the TPA, there were plan documents that I didn't do that, uh, let's just say, a very well-known ERISA attorney that you know who runs a very um, well-known ERISA-only law practice Needless to say, uh, since I didn't have a list of what my clients were and, and what weren't, I, I sent letters out saying I was going to do the restatement. Uh, at the time, I think it was the extra restatement. 
I was going to do it for 2500 bucks. And needless to say, uh, that ERISA attorney did it for a whole lot more. And, and needless to say, uh, I got a, a tongue lashing from that ERISA attorney. And not only that, the ERISA attorney went to my boss to complain, which, you know, it is what it is. But another funny part of that whole process is uh, also the fact that you would always get the uh, annoying phone calls back from a client saying, you know, they're trying to, um, you know, uh, haggle on the plenary statement. Now, I, I, you know, that, that TPA no longer exists, but I want to say that its successor TPA isn't charging any more than what we were charging back then. The, the plan document process is a lot easier thanks to, um, you know, web-based uh, Document software, everything is so much easier. It's quicker. We can email documents now. We don't have to you know, print them and bind them and all that kind of stuff. So we'd always get, you know, the, the irate plan sponsors. And so the irate plan sponsor would say, well, you know, we all know that it's just a mail merge document. Yeah, you know, those ancillary amendments were kind of a mail merge, but obviously uh, a volume submitter document tailored to a client-specific needs is not a mail merge document. But uh, the cycle three restatement got it got to be done by July thirty first. A, a hilarious part of July thirty first uh, about that answer, uh, about that amendment restatement. It only covers uh, changes through two thousand sixteen. So the CARES Act, Cure Act, all that kind of stuff that's not covered on the amendment restatement. That will be the next one, which could be cycle four, or, or who the heck knows where you know what it will be. But uh, you know, we always joke, uh, you know, I always feel the joke that uh, people think that the amendment restatement process is merely a, a way to feed ERISA attorneys. The internal revenue code is pretty specific that qualified plans have to be amended and restated when the IRS says so. And there's no, you know, there's no going about that. That That's the way it is. Um, you know, and, and there, there's nothing you can do about it. And if a plan sponsor doesn't want to restate the plan... Um, that's a qualification issue. Uh, I've seen plans on an audit get caught without having a document in place. That could lead to a plan disqualification or serious financial penalties. So that's why if somebody does flat the July 31st deadline, it's wise for them to go in through a voluntary compliance program. And uh, as I would assume, uh, as with previous restatements, there will be a grace period where a plan sponsor is late will pay a reduced fee to the VCP program. Um, next, the missing participant probe problem. Uh, to me, uh, that is a fascinating issue because I remember what it was like prior to the Department of Labor cracking down on this. Um, the Department of Labor obviously has kept a focus on the missing participant problem because they've realized that, you know, there's quite a bit of a problem, you know, the, the days where people would work 20, 25 years for a specific company are, are over. People move from job to job. Uh, unfortunately, you know, I had a bad streak where over a, a two-year, one-month period, I worked for three uh, firms, a TPA and two law firms, and then I started my own. So that was four, I guess, from March 20... Uh, March 20, March 2007, so a three-year period, March 2007 
And uh, so that was four years of four companies over a three year period to April 2010. Uh, I started my practice on April the 8th, 2010, or as I call it, Liberation Day. Um, the Department of Labor, you know, realizes that, you know, people move from job to job. Uh, and one of the problems with the practice of people leaving their jobs, they leave their 401k account balance. Uh, with their old employer. The old employer typically isn't very good at, once they reach out, they never follow up. And one of the experiences that I had was, the fact was plan sponsors only cared about missing participants when they were going to terminate the plan and they wanted to avoid another plan year where they would be required to you know, issue, uh, to, to, to prepare another 5,500. And if a plan was an audited plan and there were still quite a few account balances, that was also a problem. So, uh, you know, in, in those days, uh, when we couldn't locate participants, we used the IRS letter forwarding program, which has been since discontinued, where the right to the IRS. And uh, um, and they would forward it to the, they would forward the letter to the taxpayer. I don't know how long that would take. But worse came, worse came to worse, and I, worse came to worse, and I, I, it was not, it was outlawed. But if we really couldn't find somebody after a search, they would, you know, we would actually forward a hundred percent of the account balance to the IRS for withholding. Uh, and uh, guidance in around, I think, two thousand eight, maybe or nine or ten or whatever it is, the Department of Labor said you can't do that anymore. Um, so, you know, I think it's important to, you know, track down missing participants because, you know, one facet is, you know, dealing with required notices. If a missing participant can't get, uh, you know, uh, updated SPD, or more importantly, in my opinion, the investment changes. Uh, they're not getting education. Uh, to me, that's a, that's a, a headache of liability for the plan sponsor because the misnomer of ERISA 404C is that you you know you have to provide information to plan participants to make informed investment decisions and if you can't locate people and you can't provide them notices can't tell them hey by the way this fund that we had we're changing it we're mapping over if they're not getting that piece of information and education and they lose money in their account theoretically they could sue the plan sponsor now you know the chances are a plan sponsor suing uh, uh, being sued by a plan participant over this Slim to none, but you know I always look at you know avoiding issues and, and, and whatnot, and uh, you know the, the Department of Labor you know sees the problem and they've been focusing on this issue and uh, you know they've been issuing guidance on how to locate missing participants and procedures if they still can't be located. Uh, in my opinion, I think it's extremely important for plan sponsors to develop a missing participant procedure. And I think the process really focuses on being vigilant, constantly looking for these old employees, seeing if they are missing or not, uh, constantly, you know, contacting them to make sure that they, you know, take their money and run. You know, that, that cash out rule where anything exceeds the cash out limit, participant needs to give consent for distribution, that's, uh, that's a pain in the rear end that a plan sponsor has to deal with. 
um, and, and, and there, there's nothing we can do about that rule. So I think it's important for the plan sponsor to put a procedure in place to constantly, you know, over a period of time, annually, semi-annually or whatnot, to locate participants uh, that might be missing, making sure that any, you know, email addresses or mail that bounces back is taken care of. You know, these days, um, search, you know, programs and, and services, 20 bucks a month, you could locate as many people as you want or whatnot. Uh, I think it's important for plan sponsors to focus on that issue because the Department of Labor is focusing on it. And I've seen audits where they've certainly asked plan sponsors about it. Next, offering crypto in a 401k plan. Don't do it. Plan sponsors should not do it. I love crypto. One of my best best investments, I listened to uh, Mike Alfred, who used to be Brightscope, and he was telling me and his Twitter followers to buy crypto when it was like, you know, six, $8,000. My only regret is I didn't buy more um, because of the, the huge run-up. My cost base is about $40,000 a coin. Uh, I don't have one coin in that balance or whatnot, but uh, it, it was, it's been a great investment, uh, but it's had, you know, crazy swings. You know, I've seen it at 66,000. Uh, where, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd have a, over a 50%, you know, return on it. But then I've seen it go down to 20-something where I bought more and, you know, lowered my cost basis. And right now it's it's up again. Right now as we speak, it's like 42 or 41, so I'm still back in the money. But short term, uh, it's a very volatile investment. Um, and I, I think that uh, the, plant, the problem that I always have with plant participants is they're they like to lock in their losses. They see, you know, if they would invest in Bitcoin and they saw it 66 and it went down to, you know, 20 something, that's when they sell out. And uh, when it, you know, the Bitcoin reminds me, it's no different um, than the late 90s when you had these technology funds, everybody wanted in, everybody wanted in, and the Janus 20, the Mercury, all these kind of funds, and all the Janus funds at that time were, were very similar. In their investments, they had huge run-ups. You know, after the Janus, there was the infatuation with American funds and this, this, and that. And the problem with what's hot um, in the investment space, it, it always reminds me, you know, again of the dot bomb era, uh, the run-ups, um, the run-ups, and you know, financial stocks prior to the mortgage crisis and meltdown. It reminds me of something that my great-grandmother uh, once said. I'd never met the woman. Um, I don't even know what she looks like. Unfortunately, she was murdered uh, in Auschwitz. But she once said something to my grandmother, which, don't run after the carriage if it's not going to pick you up. And um, I always think that people who try to chase returns um, are in the same situation. It never works. Um, and, you know... I don't know uh, whether cryptos jumped the shark or not when people were starting to, you know, consider offering um, uh, options for. Uh, we see in the IRA space a lot more where they will offer a, a window within IRA to, you know, invest in Bitcoin in other stocks. You know, for my IRA, that's maybe something I would consider. 
problem is that I need another custodian. SoFi doesn't offer it. SoFi is where I have my Roth. Um, and there, I knew there was one provider that was going to offer a window within crypto for like a 5% investment. Uh, it's an absolutely bad idea. The reason why it's a bit bad idea is hot off the press, Department of Labor some issued some guidance where it's clear that if you read between the lines, and the Department of Labor is easy to read. Uh, you know when they like something and you know when they don't. I, I know for a fact uh, when uh, Trump was president way back when and he issued a directive, of, uh, executive order for the Department of Labor to come out with MEP um, guidelines, MEP regulations, and if you looked at the regulations, it mirrored the Department of Labor's advisory opinion in 2012 dealing with the tag plan on, uh, you know, needed commonality and all that for a plan, multiple employer plans to be considered as a single plan for risk, uh, for 5,500 risk of purposes. You knew between the lines, Department of Labor just didn't want to uh, listen to what Trump wanted. Uh, they were still stuck in their views, and it took congressional action and a presidential signature to, you know, create PEPs and whatnot. I read the Department of Labor's guidance on cryptos, and I think that a plan sponsor is absolutely crazy to offer crypto. Why? The Department of Labor has serious concerns about the prudence of a 401k plan fiduciary's decision to allow plan participants to direct investments in cryptocurrencies. Uh, you know, they, they obviously um, they present you know, crypto significant risks and challenges to participants' accounts, risk of fraud, theft. And loss because of valuation, non-regulation, speculation, their custody issues, and fraud. So the Department of Labor, in that guidance, says they expect to conduct investigations aimed at plans that offer participant investments in cryptocurrencies and related prop products, and they will take appropriate action to protect the interests of plan participants um, concerning these investments. So if the Department of Labor went to a plan provider that offered these cryptocurrencies, uh, Department of Labor to issue a subpoena, subpoena the TPA who wants to be ahead of the game and, and offer a crypto, and they would just, you know, subpoena the records of the TPA. The TPA would say, oh, these are the plan sponsors that have this window because there's no TPA client privilege. There's attorney client privilege, uh, but there's no TPA client privilege. And then, you know, wait, wait a second, the, the plan sponsors discovers you know, that they're on a list. Listen, I tell you, what, I always talk about the, the most craziest um, situation that I was at, and that was the fine benefit plan that was invested uh, fully in Bernie Madoff. $3 million in Bernie Madoff. Out of the Department of Labor now, they got a list of all the clients, and they focused on clients of Bernie Madoff that were retirement plans, and they launched investigations. And this plan sponsor was already uh, targeted because there was a complaint about a by a plan uh, by an employee that wasn't covered in the plan, and was excluded by name, which was an unreasonable um, classification. But again, uh, Department of Labor talks. We gotta listen. And when the Department of Labor says they have serious concerns, like Andy Stone says, you run. You don't offer it. It's not worth it. Um, I don't think a plan sponsor, you know, what I do with my money is my business. I got like $18,000 or, you know, I think between the two, maybe I got 20 grand. I, I don't know. 
if I have 20 grand in Bitcoin or 25 grand in Bitcoin, I lose all that money. It's on me. It's my money. But the moment that I'm a planned fiduciary and it's somebody else's money, I have to answer to a higher authority. It's part of labor, and that's not something that I would recommend any plan sponsor do. Um, it, it, I, I've never been, as an arrest attorney, that aggressive in my you know, um, advice. I've stayed under the radar, um, and uh, you know, I like to play things by the book, and I would not recommend any plan sponsor to do it. Last but not least, cybersecurity issues. You know, I started the retirement business in 1998. All transactions were done by the phone or by paper. Um, you could make fun switches by the telephone. Uh, it was an automated service. It was a pain in the rear end, and it took forever to, you know, happen. It took a couple of days, uh, but, you know, that was that. Um, if you wanted a distribution, you had to do it by paper. Uh, now everything can be done online. You want money from your account because you terminate employment, you can request it. You want a hardship, you can request it. You want a loan, you can request it. But the problem is, is that when things are easier, they're easier to steal. Um, so there have been issues with a couple of retirement plans where there have been cybersecurity issues. And uh, that's a result. The Department of Labor has released cybersecurity guidance directed plan sponsors and plan providers and participants. So you know, the Department of Labor outlines some you know, mitigation, uh, risk assessments that's got to be done for cybersecurity annually, as well as conducting third-party audits of system controls. I think it's important for plan sponsors to ask their plan providers of their cybersecurity insurance coverage, their procedures and whatnot. And, uh, you know, if your TPA got hit, uh, in a cybersecurity situation and, and participant accounts were, 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 hacked, um, you know, a simple Google search might find that out, and I think that's important for a plan sponsor to realize. Um, when it comes time to enter a plan provider contract, plan sponsor really needs to be sure that the contract includes protection addressing access control policies, encryption policies, notification protocol, and all that kind of stuff, and security, you know, resolving, revolving around participant data. So, you know, the 401k industry, we've seen a lot of, we've seen plan thefts through breaches in cybersecurity, and plan sponsors really need to protect themselves and participants by following what the Department of Labor is thinking about now. So, uh, that's that, and uh, we hope you enjoyed this, uh, this episode of that 401k podcast. Of course, um, come back next week for another episode, and of course, go to that 401ksite.com as we update what we're doing in Phoenix uh, as well as Miami and, and what we'll do in September and beyond. So I uh, hope you enjoy this episode. Take care. Bye.